Readers Entertainment Radio presents Book Lights with your host, author Lisa Kessler. Book Lights, where we're shining a light on good books. Good morning, everyone. I hope you all had a wonderful Mother's Day for those mothers out there who are listening and everyone who has a mother. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm very excited because today we have a fantasy author. He's fantastic. And his name's Sebastian Castell. Castell. I should have. We, we were so busy chatting for the show. I forgot to ask how to. Am I pronouncing your name right? Your last name? You're pronouncing it just right. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. (laughs) And if you haven't read his books yet, you are in for such a treat. They are swashbuckling, amazing fantasy stories, and he's got a brand new one out that we're going to talk about today. If you haven't read him yet, I'll read his bio here so you can get to know him. Sebastian is an acclaimed swashbuck, has an acclaimed swashbuck fantasy series, The Great Coast. It was shortlisted for both the 2014 Goodreads Choice Award for Best Fantasy, the Gimmel Morningstar Award for Best Debut, the Pre-Imaginale for Best Foreign Work, and the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Wow, right? Anyway, his new fantasy series, The Spellslinger, was nominated for a Carnegie Medal and is published in more than a dozen languages. Sebastian lives in Vancouver, Canada with his lovely wife and two belligerent cats, which you can see on his blog because I was poking around his website. You guys can find his website. I put the link right there on the Blog Talk site. If you're listening live or if you're listening later, you can click that anytime and check out his kitties on his blog. (laughs) Also sign up for his newsletter. And he's got all kinds of fantastic content over there for you for like behind the scenes of the books. So be sure to check that out. And without any further delay, Sebastian, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, You're up in Canada, and we were talking before the show that you're in the not snowy tundra part of Canada. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm glad that the weather is like Oh, I lost you, you there. there. Oh, there I you are. Am, All right. You disappeared, you I disappeared hear you for now. a second, but but you're back. There was. I think. I it's think you were saying something technology. witty about. You must have been <laughs> saying something witty about Canada, and, and we don't allow that up here anymore. We're we're done with people making fun of our weather. So it'll it'll basically <laughs> cut out every time. <laughs> every time we talk about your weather, okay, then we won't do that anymore. Why don't we talk about the new book? You want to tell people about um, Way of the – is it Argosy? That's right, Way of the Argosy. Yeah, it's um, – so Way of the Argosy came about because I, um, I had finished the six-book Spellslinger series, and uh, one of the main characters in that series is a, is a woman called Farius Parfax who – is this um, is an, what's called an Argosy, where these kind of wandering philosopher gamblers who sort of interfere in the ways of the world uh, in hopes of keeping it from self-destructing. Um, and so I kept having people writing me asking about how to become an Argosy because they're really fascinated by the, the philosophy of the Argosy and, and the four, what are called the four ways of the Argosy, which are, you know, um, water, wind, thunder, and stone and, and, um, so there was so much excitement about that that it gave me an opportunity to, to sort of explore how Farius, who's this character that we kind of grew to love as a, as a mentor figure, 
in the Spellslinger series, how she actually came to be an Argosi herself. So the book it, it itself explores um, her early life, going from being a young refugee who is basically hunted by a cabal of mages because her society, the, the culture that she's from, had fought a war against a society that was very uh, magically driven. Um, and her, her people had lost that war 300 years ago, but um, the society that they, that they had fought against uh, tend to be very paranoid, very sort of concerned with this notion that because they're the great mages, then everybody must be out to try and get them. And, and, and so they have this tremendous anxiety about, about that. And so they tend to go out and hunt these remaining refugees of this people who's, who've largely been decimated. And so um, Way of the Argosi is a story of, of how Farius begins as a young woman who has been kind of hunted by a cabal of, of mages and then is trying to find a way to survive in, uh, in life. And she, you know, tries kind of living as a knight because at one point she's rescued by a pair of, of, of knights and she thinks, okay, well, this is the path for me. And then that sort of fails and she tries to live as a thief and then she tries to you know, live as a gambler and she tries all these things um, and, and none of it sort of works until she meets this very strange guy by the name of Daryl Brown, who is this card playing, fast talking, swaggering kind of fellow um, who, who sort of espouses this Argosy philosophy. And, and um, as she starts to learn about that, she sort of finds another path um, before her, but it's one that is going to require that she give up the notion of vengeance against the people who have been hunting her, um, which is a very, very difficult uh, choice to make. And so this book is in part about how she comes to make that choice, which is a very long and possibly not illuminating description of the book. So I apologize <laughs> for that. No, no, I'm very, it's always intriguing when we have fantasy authors on because so much of the world um, you know, I write paranormals, so they happen in today's world. So I, that foundation is already there. But when it's high fantasy, I mean, you, you really have to create everything from the ground up to place your characters in. And I always find it fascinating what, you know, pieces of culture that we, re that we recognize, you know, filters into a, a fantasy novel. It's true, and, and the, the funny thing is that, well, I mean, I guess I, I, I tend to find, and I, I'm curious whether you find this as well, though, that, that when people sort of, just, you know, that, that, that we tend to sort of give this, um, not quite free pass, but we give this sense, uh, we give out the sense that, you know, as you say, high fantasy, well, that author had to create this whole world and um, urban fantasy or paranormal romance, well, they're getting to use the real world, but in, in fact, it always seems to me that we're all having to completely kind of create our world because you have to create all the things that are the, the elements that are meaningful in those. And, and whether that's saying, okay, well, here we have, um, you know, in this world, we have these castles over here. And in this world, we have these strange buildings in the middle of, you know, downtown Seattle or New York or wherever else. You're still having to <laughs> right. kind of create that whole world, right? Yeah, that's true. That is true. But you have to take it a step further so that we can understand, you know, how electricity works in your world and all that kind of thing. So there's like a little yeah. extra for the for the big high fantasy type type books. And I love the um, covers that I saw of your books with the cards on there. Does that 
into the the series? It does. It does. Cards play a huge role. The Argosi are kind of obsessed with cards. They have all these different decks, and partly because partly because they're almost innately gamblers. Um, that's just part of their sort of philosophy. Um, but also they, they, they create all these different decks to help them navigate the world. So one of, the, one of their decks, uh, which is called the Concordances, um, the Concordances are, are, are cards that, um, where each suit represents a culture uh, on the continent where, where the Argosi uh, travel. And, uh, and then each card within that suit represents a different sort of aspect of that culture. And so they will, they will make these cards um, to sort, of, to sort of map out the, the different cultures on the continent so that they can figure out how to navigate them, you know, so that they don't either break some terrible, uh, you know, taboo in, in, in one country or, or some other type of social rule in another one. And then when, when two Argosi kind of encounter each other on the road, they will sort of play these games of cards together basically as a mechanism of showing each other the cards that they've, that they've created um, so that they can update each other on how the world is sort of changing over time. And that'll be just one of the decks that they have. Um, and, and so when we do the covers for the series, I, I've been really fortunate that I get to, um, that I get to write the um, cover briefs generally for them. And then my editor, you know, probably strips them of everything I said and puts in, ignore that guy. Here's what you should really do. But, but it, but generally they, they seem to reflect really, uh, really well what we're looking for. We get, we get to kind of see some of those elements and inside the books in all the UK editions, um, they actually uh, in during, for the act breaks, we actually have cards from the decks where an artist will design those particular cards. And so in the case of um, way of the Argosi, the, the deck that's represented inside the book, are made up of, of, of what are called Argosi, Argosi path cards. And, and these are the elements, these are different paths people try to choose. And one of the things about the Argosi that's really important is this notion that you can't, you can't find some rigorous path in life. You can't find a militaristic code, if you will, and just follow that. So, so each of those cards has two sides to them. And on, on the, the top side is the sort of the ideal. So in the case of the knight, the top side of the card is sort of all the virtues of, of a knight, you know, being a protector and a defender and someone who, you know, can be, is honorable. And, and the opposite side of that is the conqueror, which is kind of, if you follow the path of the knight too rigorously, you kind of will inevitably become a conqueror. And there's a, a similar one with the thief, which is, you know, a thief can be kind of a noble ideal if you're trying to deal with the unfairness of the world by pulling off little heists and, and you know, the sort of Robin Hood model of, taking from those who right. have too much and giving those who have too little. But when the thief goes too far and becomes sort of the hoarder and starts, you know, collecting wealth for themselves and becoming the very problem they're trying to solve. So each, so, so cards play a huge role inside the Spellsinger series and inside the Argosi series. And, um, and I just, I love it. I, I was obsessed with tarot cards when I was a little kid, when I was eight years old. I was going to ask, friend gave, yeah. Yeah. When I was eight years old, a family friend gave my brother and I a deck of tarot cards and, which is a really strange gift to give an eight-year-old, if you ask me. But yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah, and 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 just the car, just the imagery is so beautiful and so evocative. Yes. And um, so I started reading about tarot cards, and of course, this is, you know, there's a lot of nonsense out there about tarot cards. Um, and right. and one book, and but one particularly wonderful form of nonsense was this theory that was out there that 
tarot cards had been created by traveling, sort of traveling merchants and, tra- um, and, and sort of these people who traveled across vast continents so that they could, uh, as, a, as, a, as a trade language, with people who, who you didn't share a, reg- a verbal language with. So you'd pull out the cards and you could communicate back and forth using the, the symbols on oh. the cards. Now that's all, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's almost certainly not true. But right. um, but I but I just love that idea, and so that became part of of how the Argosi operate. Oh my gosh, I love that! So so tarot cards kind of inspired this whole um, facet of your fantasy, right? Of the cards and and communicating between people and things like that. Oh, absolutely! I, uh, cards are just they're such a remarkable thing, like. You know, books, books and decks of cards are two things that always fascinate me, right? Because they both contain just such a huge amount of, of, of information. Um, they, can, they can sort of contain and communicate so much. And, and the difference is that the book is linear, right? A book, you know, has right. beginning, middle, and end. Whereas a deck, a deck is better suited to, to individual, like, mini stories, if you will, or mini ideas mm-hmm. that you can then you know, shuffle and, and, and play out any way you want. And, um, yeah, cards, are, and they're such a wonderful shape. You know, if, you, if you've ever seen, like, a professional throwing cards, that they, they can hurl a card with, like, surprising force. So, so for example, one of the, the weapons that, um, that the Argosi sometimes use that shows up is because they handle cards all the time, they're very comfortable with them and they, they're, with the shape and, the, and, and all of that. And so one of their weapons is, a, is a, that Ferius sometimes carries in the Spellslinger series is a deck of steel cards, these razor-sharp steel cards. And so she'll use those when you know, she generally tries to avoid violence, but when she's forced into a situation like that, she will use those cards either to, as a distance weapon to hurl them or she'll fan them out, which creates kind of like a fan-shaped blade. Um, so I, I just love all that. It's just so much fun to play with as a, as a writer. Yeah, and do you actually have a tarot deck? Do you use it to help inspire you while you write? Because I do. I'm very into that. But <laughs> but I mean, do you do you use decks as an inspiration sometimes? I I try to sometimes, and I I haven't I haven't sort of mastered the art of doing that. Um, so I'm interested to hear how how you do it actually, because maybe then I can bring that into my own practice because for me I'll, I'll sort of try but it, it there's a certain discipline that's required isn't there to sort of take some cards and go okay I'm going to shuffle these and, and now I'm going to make these a part of my writing process so so um not to flip the interview but I'd love to hear how, how you do it <laughs> yeah well we'll have we'll have to talk after but but yeah I yeah. I've taught um at romance conferences I've I've taught some classes to writers on how to use, you know, Oracle decks and tarot decks and stuff like that when you get stuck. And, and I always find them to be very, very inspiring. And you always grab the card you need, which is kind of creepy. I don't know how that works. I just trust that it does. (laughs) It's it's funny because that's the, the Argosi. So one of the things that's a a big deal in, in the world of Spellslinger um, is that the Argosi are absolutely it's not that they're anti-magic it's that they in a world where everybody treats magic as if it's like the most powerful thing and it's so important 
they kind of almost mock it. You know, to them, magic is sort of like it's a children's toy. It's the it's the it's your first obsession with a, with fire. You know, and that that kind of thing that that kids sometimes have. And 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 they sort of look. They, they what they do instead is they really try to elevate everything that is human, right? That human beings can do. Right. In a sense, I wanted the Argosi to be my sort of anti Jedi. You know, because. As much as I love Star Wars, I always kind of resented the Jedi because as a concept, it's sort of like you have to be born with it and you're either attuned to the force or you're not. And if you want to be really right. good at it, you have to kind of, you kind of have to kind of banish your humanity to some degree and, and your emotions. And, right. and the Argosi are just like, they're all about, you know, emotions and, and being a human being. And so all their talents are these things like, you know, they have the uh, art of loquit, which is the talent for eloquence. Um, and that's because, you know, I travel a lot and I always think like, isn't it, you know, isn't one of the most amazing skills you can possibly have it is a facility with languages and how people choose to speak and etiquette and all of those little things in, in terms of how we communicate as human beings are just wonderful to me. So that's, you know, an Argosi talent or martial arts, you know, human beings are fundamentally, we're such ungainly sort of animals, you know, we don't have proper claws or teeth or anything. And then you see what martial artists can do with the human body. And you're like, that's just amazing. So the Argosi right. tend to be about those things. And, um, and as a result, so, so one of the things that comes up sometimes is people will assume that they use their decks to sort of predict the future. And, um, and they're like, no, we don't, that's not anything that, that an Argosi would ever do. We don't have magic powers. We don't seek any kind of magic. Um, we barely believe in magic. But their notion is, and this gets back to what you were saying about the tarot deck, is that if your deck is perfect, if your deck is well-constructed, if your cards represent something that is really out there in terms of, in the case of the Argosi, you know, the, the different cultures and the different aspects of culture, then no matter how you lay out the cards, you will find a way, a, a path into insight. And I think that's what it is about the tarot deck that yes. we've all inherited in our world, right, is that no matter mm -hmm. what you pull out, those forces are always, those ideas are always at work. So there's always something to draw yes. on, right? Yes, for sure. Yeah, they're a way to tap into your own intuition of you. And so you always get the right card. It's just, it is, it is a fascinating thing. And it's been around for, people have been doing it forever. So it's very, very interesting. Uh, I was going to ask, the books are very, and not Belslinger, I was peeking at the other new series that's coming, lots of swashbuckling, and you and I were talking before that you, um, you do know how to fence, and you've done some things with choreography for fight scenes, and and I, I once took a fencing class just so that I would have some knowledge of what it feels like to hold a sword <laughs> and things for writing, and it's really hard, mm -hmm. so do you want to tell people kind of your background in that and how that influences your books? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, like most writers, everything, everything in your, in your experience, all of your experiences go to shape your writing, which is one of the things that makes writing so amazing as a, as a, as a vocation, because, you know, you and I can have completely different backgrounds. Um, and therefore, if we, we can both try to write the exact same book. You know, writers are typically, especially new writers, are obsessed with being original and trying to be unique, and then they get frustrated right. and tend to give up. But if we actually set out to try to write the same book, we would, it would, we'd end up with totally two completely different. different books, right? 
Yeah, yes, and uh, because uh, all those sure. experiences shape us. Right. Exactly. So, um, so in so in my case, uh, two of the big sort of influences on my writing one one was music. I, I've been a musician almost my adult life, um, and not a great musician, but you know, a traveling musician with you know uh, various corporate rock bands and things like that. Um, right. Or, or tribute acts. I play in a Beatles show sometimes, which is an absolute blast. Um, oh, I and so music tends to sort of. Which Beatle are you? Oh, I get to play John Lennon, which is the best part. John doesn't have to sing all the high notes. He doesn't have to play right. all the hard solos. He was really just a guy hanging out in that band. Um, so yeah, he, he had, a, he had a good gig there. And so, yeah, I, I love that. Um, the weird thing is I he got had some good lyrics five. though. He was he was the walrus he, and all. He was an amazing <laughs> writer. I always yeah. I mean, there's 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 different phases to to his songwriting and and things like that. But I always thought that the the constraint of Paul McCartney on his on John Lennon's weirdness meant that you got the best of both worlds, right? You got you got I the mixture of the very yeah, the very sort of raw, emotional, philosophical weirdness of John Lennon, but then kind of partly shaped by the by the kind of just the mastery of craft that um, that Paul McCartney had. So um, anyway, yes. But uh, but before I start um, breaking out of, into my <laughs> John Lennon song accent, about the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I also got to play in an ABBA band, so that was really cool too. So yeah, there's there's lots of great, there's so much great music. Music again is one of the things the Argosi talk about a lot because um, music is is one of the most incomprehensibly wonderful inventions of human beings, right? Like I don't For I don't sure. care if, if if you love um, you know country western music or if you love hardcore rap or you know or or metal or or whatever it is like there's always something out there that speaks to us and that kind of, you know, again, when you think of how ungainly human beings tend to be, right. We're not born like songbirds. We don't, we don't come out of the, come out of the egg and start making beautiful sound. It's, it's something we had to teach ourselves, which makes it all the more valuable. Um, But sorry, you were were asking about swords. So, so yeah, so I, um, so I used to fence and and then uh, I got into theatrical fencing briefly there, uh, which is, which is sort of, um, you know, it's choreographed fencing um, uh, with with sort of more classical weapons like rapiers and uh, and, and long swords and things like that. And then I, I started being asked to choreograph um, fight scenes for plays. And, and the first one I did that I that was really uh, just such a blast for me was was a production of um, La Liaison Dangereuse, which you know, dangerous liaisons, um, mm. of which there's been various movie versions. Um, and there's a and there's a couple of of um, sword fights. There's a few sword fights in that in that play. And the director asked me to take it on, and and I said sure. And and you know this was a small community theater, and but the the two and the two actors who were playing the two main characters who had the, the big sword fight in that in that piece were we all the three of us got along super well, and we sat down together early on, and we're just like you know do we want to do you want to just kind of like get this thing done or do we want to, you know, really just pour way too much work into this and just make it the best sword fight we 
possibly can. <laughs> and they were game, and and so was I. So we just we spent countless hours. I was training these guys, like you know, like several, like I don't know, ten hours a week, I think. And we were working on choreography, and and and, and this was also what's called theater in the round. In other words, instead of it just being a stage and then the audience safely away, it's the the audience is basically surrounding the the oh, the right. actors, and so. That makes a sword fight even trickier because you have to choreograph it so that the lines are exactly right, so that nobody, you know, suddenly stabs someone in the audience. And um, right. <laughs> but so they were so they and and these guys were they were wonderful and we had a great time and they they did an amazing sword fight and then from there I ended up one of them went back to England and was in a huge uh, a great production of Richard the Third and and so then the director for that. Uh, talked to me over the phone uh, and then, flew, you know, flew me out there to choreograph, you know, I think there was like eight uh, fights, uh, wow. eight, you know, fight scenes in that play. Um, so I got to have some really good fun and that, and that really informed a lot of my writing because the, if you, if you look at, um, you know, if, if you look at a Shakespeare script, for example, like a Shakespeare play, um, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet, right. Which has a, a few different fights in it. Basically they have dialogue up to the point where the two characters are going to fight. And then all it says in the play is they fight, right? Like that's it. <laughs> two words. They fight. There's, there's nothing else. And then they go back to acting. Um, right. And so there's, there's very few plays where, where, where even where there is any dialogue meant to be inside the, the fight itself, sometimes you can kind of force it in um, if you're lucky and the director is accommodating. But what that meant was I had to try to, uh, I and other people I would be choreographing with and the actors, you know, all of us together would have to put together a scene in which you could watch two people in a sword fight or however many people in a sword fight and you would have a sense of a story unfolding during the fight scene. So it had to be the moves that they chose to do or when they hesitated or when they tried to take advantage. All those things somehow had to communicate to an audience uh, things about those two characters, about what they were going through, about what made them. And so that was just a, a you know, that, that for me taught me that when I, when I was writing any kind of action scene, that I needed to um, somehow try to imbue the action with character. So even if you're writing, yeah. let's say, a chase scene, right? Like, like if you think of a Hollywood mm-hmm. chase scene with, the two, you know, the cars going all over, a lot of the time you're just watching spectacle. And spectacle can work right. in, a, in a movie. It, spectacle doesn't work in a book at all. Um, right. but, but even in a movie, you know, there's, there's ways it. to do it. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's ways to do it. There's ways to show that the character's choices while they're driving that race car show that they're more timid or that they're worried about hitting pedestrians versus someone else who doesn't care. So that process is really important, and, and I've tried to carry that forward with me in all of my writing. Yeah, I love that. And so, of course, I have to ask, since the sword fighting is, is a big deal, what do you think about the Princess Bride sword fighting scene? <laughs> oh, I I use that sometimes. Occasionally I'm asked to teach a, a master class in writing fight scenes. Anything that uses me and the word master at the same time always seems completely incongruous. But because um, I'm really not, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, there are, there are tons, I, you know, a friend of mine, I think you, you, you might be interviewing uh, uh, at some point in the future, uh, Chris Humphreys. Um, he's, he's a great sword guy. And uh, Miles Cameron, who's another wonderful uh, writer of fantasy and, and of historical adventure. He's a, he knows more about sword fighting than, than anyone I know. So um, 
So I don't want to sort of posit myself as, as a massive expert, but, I, but I'm a fan, certainly. And um, The Princess Bride uh, has, you know, one of the most fun, most classic um, fight scenes ever, which is the, the sword fight between Wesley and Inugo. Um, and I use that sometimes to teach people how to break down a fight scene because I tell them, like, if you look at how this fight works, uh, and I'll show mm-hmm. them, the, I show them two scenes, and I'll, uh, two scenes from two different movies, and I'll, I'll tell you the, the difference between them um, in a second, what makes them, I think, so good for writers to, to, to look at. Because you can find them both on YouTube. But the, the Wesley and Inigo scene from Princess Bride, when, when you watch that, first, what does it do? It tells you about the characters, right? It establishes right. Uh, the two characters, one saying, you know, I could help you up. And he says, well, I'd rather do it myself. And he's like, what if I promise not to? not to drop you. And you realize that, that they're trying to establish that they're both honorable people. And then yes. you, you find out a little bit about them, right? And so you know what the stakes are for each of them and why they're getting into this fight, which creates the stakes for the reader because the reader or the, the, the viewer, the reader of the book, it's a wonderful book as well, but the, the audience, as soon as that fight begins, they realize, oh, wait a minute, I don't want either of these guys to die. Like, I, this is, and then I'm scared they, for both they characters. say, I hate to kill, I hate to kill you. Yeah. Because yeah. you're such an artist. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I and then he says his response is I hate to die, um, and it also has a line that I've stolen on numerous occasions in books, including one of my upcoming books, which is called Our Lady of Blades, which is when he asks you know who are you, and I think it's Wesley says no one of consequence, and I think it's such yes. a perfect line. I, I I think I've used that at parties um, because you know <laughs> when you're when you're in the entertainment business, at some point somebody walks up to you at a party and they they look at you and it's, and they're, and they're sort of like, uh, who are you? And it's, and it's that look of like, are you somebody famous? And so I always just answer no one of consequence. (laughs) And then, and then they either totally get the reference and smile or they don't and walk away. And either way, I'm so pleased. (laughs) Yeah. Either (laughs) way you win. The line has done its job. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, but but is that fighting? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no worries, no worries. Um, anyway, but as that fight scene unfolds, you see all this wonderful sword play and, and all of that sh- um, sort of sense of swashbuckling. And, uh, and, it, and then you, you wonder, how is this fight going to end? And you have the double switch of the, of the I'm not left-handed, which is brilliant. Right. Um, and so all of those twists and turns, it's a complete story, right? Even if you took out the dialogue and all you could do is watch the two characters, you would get this complete story. Um, and, and that's what I love about it. And that was, that was choreographed by, um, there's a couple of, of sort of famous British choreographers that were part of it. And, and um, I, I think Bob Diamond was sort of more the sword trainer on Princess Bride. Um, but there's another, there's another um, uh, guy by the name of uh, Bill Hobbs who was kind of the very di- uh, the very different style. And, and so the other piece that I show people, and again, you can see this on, YouTube, if you want, is from Ridley Scott's first film. And Ridley Scott's first film as a director was called The Duelists. And it features Keith Carradine and um, Harvey Keitel. Or Hi- Harvey Keitel. I oh. know, never know how to pronounce his name, Harvey Keitel. Um, playing two French soldiers. Um, it's from a short story, and I think it's from Joseph Conrad. Is it Grand Green? Joseph Conrad, probably. It's from, it's from a famous short story. Um, and it's about these two soldiers who end up dueling each other several times over the course of their lives. And, 
um, the opening fight scene of that is the exact opposite of The Princess Bride. There's no dialogue. It's short. It's nasty. It's cruel. It looks awkward. It's, it's almost painful to watch. And, and Ridley Scott had told the fight choreographer for that um, as he was beginning production on that film, he said, I don't want to see any of that Errol Flynn crap. I want this to be dirty and ugly. I want people to feel uncomfortable. And, and, you, and so he created something that was incredibly realistic. Um, and so if you watch those two, I think, you know, both as someone who, who likes to, to, um, to, watch, to read, read books or watch movies, you see these two different visions of, the, you know, of a sword fight. And then as a writer, it's really fantastic because you realize, okay, I have a lot of space to play in if I want to write a, a, an action scene or a fight scene. So that's what I love about those two pieces. So, yeah, I'm a huge yeah. fan of The Princess Bride mm-hmm. and The Duelist. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I could talk to you all day, but we're running out of time. So I um, want to remind everybody to go grab The Way of the Argosy. And is it out in the U.S. yet? I saw it was out in it's, the U.K. It, it's, yeah, it's out everywhere in the world except uh, my home country of Canada and yours of the United States. Um, it's well, coming out soon. We were, <laughs> however, you can, so you can, you can, you can easily order the hardback, which is uh, absolutely gorgeous. The work that they do on these hardbacks, like they're almost, I, I adore the hardback editions and, uh, or the, or the trade paperback. You can order those from book depository, which I think is an Amazon company and they ship for free anywhere in the world. So it's actually, often cheaper than, than most other ways of, of buying the book. And then ebook and audiobook um, are coming out soon, I think probably within a, within a couple of weeks. And, uh, and the audiobook for this is absolutely amazing. Um, Kristen uh, Atherton uh, was, you know, we, we, we were really worried about who was going to take on the voice of this sort of very iconic character for all, for all of us that worked on the, on the books. Um, and she just, I, I cried when I listened to her performance of the book. She just, it's one of my favorite parts of being an author is when, is when you get to hear the audiobook and, and an actor comes in. I do in love the audiobook. Adds, yeah, they just add these layers to it. And I was like, wow, this, mm-hmm. is, a, this is like a whole different story in a way. And um, so I, you, you get to enjoy it twice. So, yeah, yeah that's I what's agree. Going on. But it'll be, it'll be out soon. Okay. Okay. Well, everyone run out there and grab it and check out uh, Sebastian's website and sign up for his newsletter so you don't miss the next book. And we'll have to have you back on again um, when the next one comes out because there's so much more to talk about. But thanks so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. Thanks for joining us on Booklights. Be sure to connect with us at www.readersentertainment.com for articles, blogs, videos, and podcasts that matter to readers.